If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Before we read that, we'll go ahead and pray. But Isaiah chapter 9, we can get it ready to go, get it loaded. And, uh, and we'll read verses 1 through 9 will, um, will be the, the passage we're looking at today. Typically, we've, we've been to the Gospel of Mark, of course. Um, last week, Eric preached, which is always a blessing um, for, for anyone who hears. And then, uh, so next week, God willing, I think we'll be back in, in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless, bless the word, and then we'll look at this. Oh God, we come before you now, and, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you, would, that you would give us unction, that you would give us grace to see who Christ is, oh God, in all his splendor and all his glory and all his majesty. Lord, we need your help for this. Lord, we know that it's, it's you alone who gives gives us eyes to see and ears to hear that, that, um, that impresses the truth of your word upon us, O oh God, and that um, it, it's more than just mere words, Lord. So please help us now. Help us, O oh God. Glorify Christ now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Isaiah chapter 9, um, the backdrop, and, and actually, of course, we read this, William read this this, this, uh, this afternoon in the service, so um, I'm not going to read it yet, but, but here's the thing on the backdrop of this. So if you look at the, the Gospel of Isaiah, and I mean that, because that's a lot of times throughout church history, they call Isaiah the Gospel of Isaiah, the fifth Gospel, because if you read the Gospel of Isaiah, or the, the, the book of Isaiah, I keep referring to it, but it's, when you read Isaiah, you know what you find? You find a lot of gloom, a lot of despair, a lot of, a lot of unrest, a lot of turbulence, but then you have throughout the, the book of Isaiah, you have sprinkled in there these glimmers of hope. And these glimmers of light and these, these glimmers of promise, these, something that God is going to do, not yet, but later on. And so that's why it's called the Gospel of Isaiah, um, because you're not going to find another book outside of the four Gospels where you actually have this content regarding the Messiah, regarding what Christ does, like you do in Isaiah. And, um, and so if you look at chapter... Chapter, let's, I said chapter 9. Actually, let's go to chapter 1 for, for, for a minute. And I want to build some of the context and the backdrop of what Isaiah is talking about when we get to chapter 9. Because it's, so, it's, it's critical to realize what's going on in the time of Isaiah in order to appreciate why this is so, so overwhelming as far as such a promise goes in chapter 9. Okay, so chapter 1, um, verse... Let's start in verse 4 through 8, okay? Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. He's saying, where else can I strike you? I've struck you in the head and it didn't work. I struck you in the heart. That didn't work. Where else can I strike? Verse 6. For the sole of the foot, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. So not just you, but look around at the land. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation, is overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is, like, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a, watchman, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. In other words, there's nothing really hopeful that's going on in this picture. Now, we know that the, the reason this comes upon the Israelites is because of their sin. This is God's judgment against them. So that's how this book starts out. Now, it doesn't get much better if you go to, let's say, chapter 6. Go to chapter 6 of Isaiah. 
And you'll find Isaiah in a similar theme going on, verses 8 through 12, chapter 6, 8 through 12. Then I, the, um, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I sit and who will go out for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now this is a response of Isaiah before this in the beginning of chapter 6. He sees, he has a vision of God, and, and Christ tells us the vision he has is actually a vision of Christ. So, th- so he sees Christ lofty and exalted, sitting on a throne with the train of his robe filling the temple. And Isaiah's standing here, and he's seeing this, and he's overwhelmed, and he's struck with um, something like terror and guilt and shame because he says, woe is me, for I'm ruined, I'm blown to pieces, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, my people are people of unclean lips, and now I'm standing here in the presence of a holy God, the angels are covering themselves up, what am I to do? Now, the angel comes with the burning coal, touches his mouth, which is a sign of atonement, his sins being cleansed, him, him being cleansed, him being prepared. And then verse 8 or verse 9 is the response. When God says, who is going to go to this people and tell them the message that I have for them? Isaiah says, I'll go. I'll do it. In light of everything I've just seen and in light of the grace of God coming and touching my tongue and, and now I'm cleansed, I'll go. And he says, what am I to say? Which is a right Question, what am I, when I go to the people, what do you want me to tell them? And this is what God says, verse 9. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And you're thinking, well, maybe it's just for like, you know, a year. A couple, you know, a short season, a very short amount of time. But God says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You see here the seriousness of sin, obviously. The seriousness of God's judgment upon a a people, upon a nation. Um, Here's what you have going on. Okay, There are, in the nation of Israel, at this time, it's, it's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel, by this time, by the time Isaiah is writing, Israel has already been wiped off the face of the earth by Assyria. Assyria is the world's superpower of the time. This is, and, and here's the thing about Assyria. They're barreling down on Judah. And that's why they're looking around and they're saying, what are we going to do? You, you, have, you have the greatest enemy. And this isn't like, oh, they're across the ocean. These guys have just wiped out the northern part of, of, of Israel. And all that's in their way is, you know, maybe, maybe a couple meters, kilometers, um, <laughs> meters, kilometers, a couple miles, <laughs> a lot of miles. Okay, this is, not a, this is not a good spot to be in. And so what's going on? Here's the thing, though, okay? They are looking to Isaiah for a word from God regarding the situation they're in. Because they're saying, what are we supposed to do here? But here's what you have, okay? And it's not just there. If you go to chapter 8, 21 and 22, you see something similar. Um, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged in, in and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. These are the Israelites. But here's the thing. It's not any better for the pagan Gentiles and the barbarians. You know, you might be looking at Assyria, and Assyria, the world's superpower, what are they doing? Well, they're sacrificing their children to Moloch. They're, they're engaged in all kinds of idolatry. They're worshiping reptiles and snakes and all, you know, doctrines of demons everywhere they go. They're infested by this stuff. It's not any, it's not any better if you go outside of, 
of Israel. And if you look at the world, right, you're saying, okay, what is going on here? Paul says that, that apart from Christ, we're separated from God, alienated, no hope, without God, far off. Romans chapter 1 gives us this description of what these pagan nations would have been like. It's saying, professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What does God do then? Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So you go to God's people, the Israelites, and you're saying, okay, well, surely there's some... some some good stuff going on here. And there's not. There's idolatry. There's witchcraft. There's adultery. There's greed. There's false prophets everywhere. There's not anything good there. And you say, okay, well, maybe not Israel. Let's go outside of Israel and look around. See, see what's going on there. Surely there's, there's, there's something good, right? Same thing. Idolatry, greed, witchcraft, false prophets, false teachings, all these things, right? And here's the, here's the thing, okay? It's not just, it's not just Israel and it's not just the Gentiles and barbarians where this stuff is going on. It's not just the human beings, in other words. It's the entire earth. The entire earth is under a curse. And we know the curse is because of sin. When Adam sinned, we know that that's when death begins to spread to all men because all men sin. But in Romans 8, it talks about how the creation itself, in Romans chapter 8, it says the creation itself, let me read this for you. Romans 8, 21, 19-22. Excuse me. Romans 8, 19-22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its, look at this, slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you're saying, well, where do we see that? Right? Where do we see this idea that the creation itself is in an abnormal cursed condition. Well, you see that because let's take, let's take animals, for instance. You know, animals, lions and spiders, black widows, um, I mean, the, the most vicious animals, even, even if you've seen the documentary Blackfish, I think it's called Blackfish, right? That one where the, the, the killer whales and they're, you know, the, 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 these, these trainers are working with the killer whales for years, and then all of a sudden the killer whale turns on them and ends up just taking these guys under, killing them, everything else. And you're like, listen, that was not the way things were supposed to be. In the Garden of Eden, remember, those animals are coming up to Adam. It's not like Adam named, named all the animals except the really vicious ones. He's the one naming all the animals. When the universe is cursed because of Adam's sin, because God, is, God has set Adam up to be a representative, a steward of the creation. So when Adam sins, everything comes under this curse. And now you have the threat of animals. Now you have the threat and you say, well, we, you know, I don't really have the threat of animals. It's not like we run into hyenas and, and jackals and, and uh, wild animals and tigers everywhere we go, right? But here's the thing. Um, if you read through the Old Testament, and if you go basically anywhere today in the world, the, the, the notion of these wild animals, that's a very real threat. Here's the other thing, though. Tornadoes. Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. These things are abnormal. That's not the original state of the creation, of the order of things. So here's my point. Wherever you look, there is no hope, right? Where can I look to find a glimmer of something, some kind of, some kind of normal condition as far as the way God has meant something to happen or the way God has meant things to be? And you, you can't find it. 
And so that's why they're looking to Isaiah and they're saying, what, what are we supposed to do? In light of the fact that we have the greatest superpower known to man up to this point barreling down and they're going to overtake us and destroy us. And it's because of our sin, our judgment on us. What are we supposed to do? And so they look to Isaiah for a word from God, and here's the thing, that's exactly what we have to do as well, right? We look to God for a word of hope, because it's not like we're in any other... The the condition that they're in is the same thing today. If you look around you, what were you like? What was your state like before you came to Christ? Where would you be today, apart from Christ, apart from the, the grace of God in your life? Where would you be, right? And that's the thing, so many people are in the same condition, and, and so when we're looking at this, and of course, of course, we can go on and on about, oh, the wicked state of our, of our nation, of our city, and all the, all the things, the, the sinfulness, all the things that you saw in Israel, you see here, you see in our, in our land, right? Um, idolatry, witchcraft, adultery, abortion, all these things. They're happening today in Clovis. And so we too need this, this vision, this look to God here, and that's what you have in verse 1. So I know that's a way long introduction compared to what we usually do here, but... It's necessary, because chapter 9, verse 1, look at the first word Isaiah gives us, but. That word? But. There's gloom, despair, hopelessness, anguish, destruction, mayhem. You have Assyria barreling down. They're about to, not just, and by the way, you know, when they would overtake a city, they're dragging people out with hooks and with chains. The women are being raped, everything that you can imagine. That's, so that, their, their houses are being burned down. And that's right, on their, that's right on the front door, on the step. But Isaiah says, but. It's not looking too good, guys. But. But. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those were the first cities taken by the Assyrians. That was in Israel, the northern part. They were the first cities taken. Assyria comes, um, they overtake these cities, they wipe them out. But do you know that this is exactly the place in Matthew chapter 4, let me read this for you. Matthew chapter 4, when Christ begins his ministry, you might remember this, but in Matthew 4 verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Where's Galilee? And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Where's Capernaum? They're in the same region, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, the irony of God in this, right? So in God's judgment, the first people that are wiped out because of their own sin, because of their own rebellion against God, is the very first place that the Messiah, when he comes to earth 800 years later, is going to go and set up shop and work out of as far as his ministry in the north goes. The exact same place. And it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, and then it repeats what we're reading here. I mean, this is is the beauty of it. So think about this, right? Isaiah is telling these people 800 years before Christ comes to earth. They don't fathom. They don't fathom what... We're going to see this the more we go along. But can you... Isaiah doesn't come out and say, hey, listen, guys, God is going to take on flesh, and he's going to step foot on the soil that has just been taken and plundered by the Assyrians. He doesn't say that. And so even when, I mean, there's a lot of hope here, right? But in a sense, it's still mysterious. That's why Paul will talk about in the fullness of time, God does this. It's the mystery. That's why he talks about the mystery of the gospel has been revealed. How is, what is, what do you mean he's going to, 
He's going to make this land glorious. What does that mean? Right? By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Notice, notice the contrast here, darkness, light. The people who walk in darkness, they'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Darkness and light, darkness and light. Where do you have this? You have this especially in two places. Okay? Especially. What, how, how is God describing the land right now in, 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 this, in this area? He's saying it is empty and formless and void, and chaotic, and out of control, and, and full of, of misery and despair. Darkness. But then what's God going to do? God's going to come and He's going to reform this. He's going to reshape it. He's going to bring light to this area. Well, wouldn't you know that's exactly what you have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness over the land. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. But God doesn't leave it dark, right? Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be light. Let something happen. That's why when Christ comes, it's, it's called the new creation. It's called the new exodus. It's called the, 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 the new pattern of things. It's something entirely new. But new creation, why? Because the old creation is under a curse. So you need a new creation. So when Christ comes to earth, that's what in Isaiah chapter 9 is referring to here. This is land that's, that's, that, that, is, that is disordered. This is land that's out of joint. It's void. It's empty. It's hopeless. But God's going to do something. And that's why, you know, people say, well, well I, don't, I don't understand, man, because, you know, the, the, the first day it says there's light, but on the, you don't get the sun and the moon and the stars until the fourth day. What's up with that? There must be a mistake here somewhere. No, because what do you have when Christ comes in John? What is, what is Christ described as? The light of the world. Look what it says in John chapter 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Christ says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. In 1 John, it says that God is, God is light. God is light. So anytime there's this idea of light here, like this, what's going on here, the people who, who walk in darkness will see a great light. What is the light they're talking about? You know, it's not like God's going to, or, or Isaiah or anybody else, they're just going to start bringing out a whole bunch of lanterns because this land is under darkness. This is, of course, a spiritual, symbolical reference to what God is going to do. And he's not, again, this is amazing because, um, well, look in, verse, look in verse 4 in a sense, but look at verse 3 first. We'll get there in a minute. Okay, here's what happens in verse 3. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And if you're in agriculture, I know we have a lot of, some people here in agriculture, you know, supposedly in the old days especially, but I'm sure it's the same way today. Anytime there's a harvest though, after a harvest is a season to rejoice and to, to, to be glad and to take joy, to be, to be happy, especially in these days when you don't have the, you don't have the sprinklers and stuff hundreds of years ago, right? So harvest, the fact that you can have a harvest, and of course it's the same today, is really the kindness of God. It's the providence of God. Of course it's the same today. But, but just the idea of thinking, man, we could have been left in a really bad spot if God didn't provide for our needs and bring a harvest. So there's this gladness of harvest as rejoice when they divide the spoil. Look at verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor is at the battle of Midian. There's two references here being made to the Old Testament. Two references here. Now look at that and ask yourself, what is this referring to? 
You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Where have you seen the Israelites in shackles and under a yoke and under a burden being oppressed? Egypt, the Israelites, the great deliverance, the great exodus of God, right? Ask yourself for the second one, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. What's the battle of Midian? Gideon. And if you ask yourself, well, what happened at that battle? Gideon, his army is, is, is whittled down to 300 people, and they're up against, I don't, you know, sometimes we forget this, they're up against 135,000 Midianites. If you have 300 people going against 135,000 people, you are not going to win. I don't care what kind of technology, what kind of wisdom, what kind of, you're not going to win that. But these two victories right here, these are the prototypical, the preeminent acts of deliverance of God for his people in the Old Testament. And so what Isaiah here is saying, think about what he's saying here then. He's saying, as it was in the battle of Gideon versus the Midianites, and as it was in the Exodus, so God is about to do something in this land on the very soil that has been destroyed, been wiped out. God is going to do something here that's greater than those battles. And the human mind could not fathom that. What could be, what could be greater than a group of 300 conquering 135,000? What could be better than that? What could be better than a bunch of slaves overthrowing one of the world's greatest empires, the, 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 the Egyptian pharaoh? What is better than that? And it's amazing because, again, you're thinking, well, we know. But that, we're kind of cheating in a sense, right? Because we're, we're, we're living this 2,000 years removed, man. We know, we know how it is. We know what, what's going to happen. But just fathom, would you have been able to take comfort and hope from the message that Isaiah is giving you? Giving these people here. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the boot of warrior in the battle to mold and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. What he's saying here is the boots and, and, and the cloaks that you use in war, throw them in the fire. Why would you need to throw your battle boots in the fire? Our soldiers here, they can tell us, right? These guys, you guys are in the military. You better have your boots, right? You got to keep your boots. But when you retire, when the, when the battle's done, when the victory is in hand, you can throw your boots away. You don't need them anymore. That's what's going on here. The fight is over. The victory has been won. These battle garments, the garments you wore in the battle, throw them away. We don't need them anymore. But the glorious thing is he, ha he hasn't even told us why yet or how. He's just describing what's going to happen. And then in verse 5, or verse 6, excuse me, verse 6, he starts getting into how this is going to happen. For... And this is, <laughs> this is great because it's, it's almost like anticlimactic because you're expecting some really glorious, grand, phenomenal, unbelievable, overwhelming thing to take place. And you're saying, okay, Isaiah, but how is it going to happen? And he says, well, a child's going to be born. I'm like, what? What do you mean a child's going to be born? A child's born all the time. Oh, you must, mean, you must mean Isaiah like a child and he's going to grow up to be like, like Moses or David or something like that, right? And it's like, yeah, something like that because Moses was a type of the Christ to come. David was a type of the Christ to come. Abraham was a type of the Christ to come. All of these great figures, Gideon, all these great figures, even you know, in a certain sense, Samson, all these great figures in the Old Testament were just types of what Christ was going to do and come in body. And, and, and be embodied in. Here's the thing, though. Again, think of, your, think of yourself in their position, and Isaiah comes and he says, there's going to be a really great and glorious thing that's going to happen in this land. It's going to happen because of a child. 
That'll throw you off a little bit, would it not? I think that would throw me off. Because you're thinking, well, wait a minute, wait. child. And then he goes on, and he, he starts to describe this child. A child would be born to us, a son will be given to us. And of course, the reference there, think of that, it's not just a child will be born, but it says a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. So there's something hopeful there, right? God is going, in other words, God is hearing us. God recognizes that we're in this dilemma. He recognizes that we're in this state, and he's going to give us a son. He's going to give us a child. And it's still like, well, yeah, okay, but what do you mean by that? Now, here's the thing on all of this. If you look at Christ, and if you look at, ask yourself this, and this is, if you you catch it right, and if I articulate it right, really, is what it comes down to, then it really is mind-blowing. But imagine this, okay? Ask yourself this. Before God created Adam, does God, does he know that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is going to come to earth? Does he know that, right? He does know that. So if he knows that, what's he going to do? When he creates Adam, he creates Adam, the vessel, the body, the human form, has been created and molded in a way so that the Son of God can actually take it on and come to earth. And it shows you right there, it really does, the preeminence of man, what it means to be made in God's image, in a sense. That is part of what that means, to be made in God's image. That God has so made the human being so that His own Son can... And here's the thing. Not only does the second person of the Trinity take on the form of a human being, but guess what? He doesn't leave it behind when he ascends. Even as we speak, Christ right now is... He is a human being at the right hand of God right now. So when God created man, he created man in such a way that his son could take on that figure, that flesh, that man, for not just 30 years, 33 years, but for all of eternity. It's insane. It really is. It's amazing. And so again, I mean, we know we know how we know the 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 drama and the how this is how how dramatic all of this is that a child will be born to us. Well, what kind of child? Not just any child. The God of the universe is actually going to be born to us in the sense in the in the form of a man. Right? We're not saying the God of the universe has a beginning or is born. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And now there's four names here. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. We're going to go through this one by one, and then we're going to spend some time at the very end talking about the zeal of the Lord of the hosts. Of, of, of hosts okay? Number one, Wonderful Counselor. Um, what does that mean? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But before they do that, what's the first, what's the first city they destroy? Y'all remember? Jericho, right? On the eve of the destruction of Jericho, there is a man, it says a man in Joshua, specifically says a man, a man appeared to Joshua, the man's got a sword, the man's ready to go, he's ready for battle, and Joshua says, wait a minute, who are you for? Are you for us or are you for them? What side are you on? And the response is, is I am the captain of the army of the Lord. Okay, fair enough. Must be an angel. Maybe it's just this super figure like a Samson type guy. But then this this same person, this man, tells Joshua, take your sandals off. Why? Because the ground you're standing on is holy. 
Well, wait a minute, I've seen that before. Where have I seen that before? Oh yeah, right, with the, with the burning bush in Exodus. When Moses is out, he's, he, he approaches the burning bush and, and, and God tells, he says, Moses, stop where you are, take your sandals off because the ground you're standing on is holy. And so here's the point, okay? Christ was the one, you know the, the pillar of fire by, by night, the pillar of cloud by day, guess who that is? That's Christ going before the, 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 the army of the Lord. He's going before them. He's the one that goes before them in, in the... In, in the promised land, and he's wiping out all of these foes. He's, he's the one that, 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 it wasn't Gideon, it wasn't Gideon in the 300 who destroyed the, the, um, the uh, Ammonites, Midianites, Midianites, thank you, thank you. There's a lot of words going through my head. He's not the one who does that. Gideon's not the one. Who does that? Christ does that. And so what you have here is when Christ is called a mighty God, he's saying, Listen, the God who led Joshua into the promised land and defeated all those dudes and ransacked the, the, the whole area, more or less, 31 kings, is the same God who's going before us today in our battles. We'll talk about this in a minute, but he's mighty God. Third, he's an everlasting father. Now here you might trip up and have a stumbling block because you're like, wait a minute. Okay, I got you, right? It's not talking about the son. It is talking about the son, because we've already seen a son will be born. Um, here's, here's the language here. Everlasting father. Sometimes, now first of all, he's everlasting, so that's a reference to his deity. But the father part, you're like, well, wait a minute. There are times, it's, it's, I mean, literally Paul is not a mother, but Paul refers to himself as a mother as far as his response and how he treats the, the, the flock and the people in his care. He's like a nursing mother to them. In Hebrews, it calls Christ our elder brother. Right? Well, how often do elder brothers act in a fatherly role, in a fatherly way towards especially those, especially if, if, if the person that their, elder, that their elderly brother's over is uh, a lot younger than them, or maybe they're a lot smarter than their younger brothers? And in the case of Christ, that's especially true, right? So it's talking about the, he gives a, he has fatherly care for his people. He's tender. He disciplines us like a father would. And then Prince of Peace. And this is, of course, in so many ways. And here's the thing about the, uh, here's the, thing about the Incarnation. And this is going to lead us right into the next part and the last part. But Christ came as a Prince of Peace to save us from God. So we have peace with God today because of Christ. There's individual, on an individual level, there, I have peace with God because of what Christ has done for us. Okay? But also on a cosmic level, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, there's a... And we started out today in the service. Look at, verse, look at verse 6, okay? And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. How is that going to happen? A wolf doesn't dwell with lambs, right? What does a wolf do to lambs? It ransacks. It kills them. Eats them. Here you have a wolf dwelling with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. Leopards don't lie down with young goats. Leopards eat young goats. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Then you have a little boy who's going to lead the, uh, uh, the fatlings and the young lions. And also the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Lions don't eat straw, right? What is going on here is that because of the birth of this son, there is going to be a cosmic restoration of the entire cosmos, the entire universe. We have to remember that the incarnation is not about only, merely, our individual salvation. There's something so much bigger going on here. The entire heavens and earth are being reconciled. It's cosmic. It's on a scale that's, that's, that's universal and eternal and cosmic in scope. And, and, and you see this because here's, here's what you have 
at the end of Isaiah, the passage we're in today. It says this, it says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So this peace that he gives us, there will be no end to this peace. Well, what's that talking about? At the advent of Christ. And this is probably the most important thing to the whole, at least for today's, this passage, the, the entire incarnation, when Christ comes, that is the beginning of Christ's reign. His kingdom begins the second He shows up. The second He is in the womb. The reign of Christ, the kingdom of Christ commences. And it doesn't, you might say, well, wait a minute, man, I've heard that word thousand, and He's going to rule for a thousand years. And if you're saying it started then, it's been... That word thousand symbolic. It always means for a long period of time. It means for, for it means a lot. It means a, a long period of time. Every time that, that word appears, we don't have time to get into it. Every time the word thousand appears in the Bible, it's always a reference. It's a symbolical reference to a long period of time. Or something big or or or, or large. God owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. That means more than a thousand. Christ is reigning. Now here's the thing. Doesn't the Bible say that God is going to be a God? to us, to a thousand generations. Do you know how many years a thousand generations is? This is, the, this is crazy. 40,000 years. 40,000 years. We're 6,000 years in. We still have 40,000 years left on, not, not we personally, right? But, but this, this earth before the second advent of Christ, the return of Christ, you're talking 40,000, and really if everything's more than a thousand symbolically, you're talking more than 40,000 years. 40,000 years. And you're like, you're looking around and you're saying, well, wait a minute. I see right here that it says, of the increase, to the increase of his government, there will be no end. What does that mean? How is there an increase in this, right? If, if, if you go back, Christopher Columbus, this is a neat little tidbit about Columbus. Christopher Columbus, when he sets out from Spain, why does he set out? You know why he sets out? He had notebooks crammed and crammed, stuffed, filled with the promises of God regarding the kingdom of Christ and His reign on earth that is going to increase and spread from sea to sea. The reign of Christ. We saw it today in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11. Look what he says. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What does Christ say in the Great Commission? Go into all the world. Columbus is reading these passages in the, in the Scriptures. And he's got these notebooks that he's writing on. And he says, you know what? If Christ has told us that this gospel is going to go for all over the world, there's got to be a route all across the world to get us from one side of the world to the other. And he has the confidence. That's what gives him the boost to get on the ship and to say, you know what? There must be a sea route to the other side of the world because God has told us the gospel is going to go to the other side of the world. And how are we going to get there? It's got to be, at this point, a boat. And so he gets on the boat, and of course he doesn't land up where, where, wind up where he wants to get necessarily, but in God's providence is exactly what God wanted. Why? Because in 1557, fast forward about 50 years or so, there's a guy named John Calvin. He receives a letter from a group of people who are about to go to Brazil to settle down in Brazil. And they reach out to Calvin and they say, Calvin, we need some ministers. We want you to supply ministers to go with us because we're going to go settle in Brazil. And when Calvin hears that, this is what the church in, in Geneva, this is their response to this letter. They at once gave thanks to God for the extension of the reign of Jesus Christ in a country so distant and so foreign and among a nation entirely without knowledge of the true God. 
Now think of this. How are they getting this? They're getting it from the Scriptures. In Daniel 2.44, it says, In the days of these kings, which is a reference to the early Roman Empire, Daniel's living before, he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, the Roman emperors, in the days of those kings, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never... Wait a minute. I know who that is, right? Christ is His kingdom. God is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it it itself will endure forever. That's... Think about this, Columbus, in the days of Columbus, what did Clovis, what did this area in Clovis look like in the days of Columbus? Was there any gospel witness? How about the Comanches, right? They're running wild in this area, they're killing each other, they're pulling people out, they're they're worshiping dead crow. That's what we were doing, our ancestors were doing, wherever you find them before the gospel goes to them. That's the idea here, that there is an increase as far as the, the extension of the reign of Christ on earth. And notice the key word here at the very end of this passage in Isaiah. It's the zeal of the Lord, it's the zeal of the Lord that will perform this. The Lord is going to do it. It's not us pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap and saying, oh man, we're just going to work. Hey, we're, we're smart enough. We're, we're, we're righteous enough. We got everything. It's the zeal of the Lord of the hosts. That's what Calvin looks at. That's what Columbus looked at. You know? I mean, he's looking at it, he said, no, God is going to do this. He's promises all the missionary movements, the great missionary movements in the 1700s, late 1700s. If you were to stand up in England and say, you know what, I got a heart for the Indians over in the country of India. I want to go over there. And if you were to stand up and say, I, I feel like the Lord's sending me to India, you know what they would do? They would say, sit down and don't even think about that. Because God clearly doesn't want us to do anything with the Indians because we're not in India. That's how they were talking. William Carey had to fight a lot of backlash before he got to go. And even when he went, it was in the face of backlash. People saying, That's, why, why would you go to them? Because Christ says the reign of his kingdom is going to be extended. The increase of his government, is, it will have no end. That's why. And there are still nations. There are still peoples. There are still neighborhoods. Now, we, now in America, we don't even have to go overseas. The increase of God's government, it really is. Think about Clovis. How many lost people are in Clovis today? Right? So when we look at this promise and we say the increase of the government of the Lord will have no end, there's work to do, but there's also great hope and great confidence. And here's the point, it's because of the incarnation. When Christ takes on flesh, that is the beginning of the reign of God that he has installed his son. In, in, I mean, we can go on and on with this, but, but uh, Daniel 2, 8, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's reigning, he's putting his enemies under his feet. And this is what Calvin says, and we'll end with this. Calvin says, since the Most High, he wrote this, by the way, I didn't tell you this, but how does that, so Calvin, they send missionaries out to Brazil. And they celebrate the first Reformed service in the entire Americas in 15... 47 or something, 1557, excuse me, 1557. The sacraments, the service, the preaching of the word, and then those pastors are actually all killed very shortly after that. But before they died, Calvin sent a letter, and he said, since the Most High has given us this task, we expect this Edom, which is a reference to God's enemies, we expect this Edom to become a future possession of Christ. That's what the incarnation does. It gives us the hope that God is on the throne. 
And not only is he on his throne, but he's actually, because he's there, because we're here, he is the one supplying us with hope and with strength and with power. And we suffer grievously on this earth, do we not? These pastors in Brazil, they were, they were killed. How many families have died? How many wives? How many children? How many people have died for the name of Jesus Christ? How bleak do things look in America right now? And you're saying, man, there is no hope in all of this. But Christ is saying, no, this is just the beginning. We're part of the early church. 6,000 years in, when people look back, they're going to say, this church in Clovis, that was the early church, man, because we're 40,000 years later. But here's the thing. Christ is going to extend His reign. He's going to extend His kingdom. Why? Because He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so you can be pessimistic if you want, but the reality is this, man. The reality is this. This is the pre-Christian America that we're living in. America not be, it might not be America, you know, by the time Christianity comes and and floods, and so it might be China or something else. (laughs) But the reality is, is that God's word, God's government, God's kingdom, God, the knowledge of the Lord is going to spread. And so we can have great hope, and it's because of who Christ is. And so again, in the great, in the midst of this great bleak situation, Isaiah says, don't fear, don't panic, have hope, because Christ is going to be born, and he's going to reign. And the kingdom of his reign is not going to end ever, 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 ever. There's going to be increase, increase, increase. We just reached out, Eric mentioned a guy in, in the Philippines reaches out to us, and it's so random, it's not, it's God's providence, but he just he's like, hey guys, and he's this Filipino guy, and he's planting a church in the Philippines. He started out, you know, they, they don't have any good churches in his area, and so he's got, anyways, long story short, they've been meeting. He's got, I don't know, 20 people, 15, 20 people, and he said that, you know, hey, man, I, I want to I do it the right way. Can you guys help me out? Can you guys put some, provide oversight and all that? I mean, it's just so, you know, and I told you about, you know, in seminary, all the Chinese guys over there saying there's a revival going on in China right now. The guy in the Philippines says that people in his neighborhood, whenever they're, they're there on a Sunday in their Bible studies and stuff, they're doing the Bible studies, people overhear, the neighbors overhear what they're doing, they come and they say, hey, can we, can we see what you're doing? We want to be part of this. Like they're flocking, they're hungry for it, right? Whereas in Lubbock, Texas, you have neighbors turning us in and trying to be, you know, trying to kick us out. It might not look good here, but don't think that worldwide the kingdom of God is not advancing. It is. Because Christ is on the throne, because he's king. So let's pray and we'll come to the table. Oh God, we thank you for, for Christ. We thank you that, that we serve a, a, a king today. Lord, that you have heard our, our cries, you have seen our misery, you have seen the depths of our depravity, of our sin, and that you have not been silent about it. That you haven't, been, you haven't left us in this state, oh God. We thank you that the answer that you've given to your people is... Not just any man, not just any child, but you yourself coming in the person of Jesus Christ. You yourself taking on flesh and coming and, and, and condescending and humbling yourself for us, for people who don't deserve this. Lord, we confess, oh God, that we don't deserve this. And we are in the same situation. And if we're not, we should be as these Israelites of old. And yet, just like you spared them and you delivered them ultimately through Christ, we thank you, O God, that we have that same promise and that same victory and that that same hope. 
that no matter what goes on in this life, we know that Christ is King, and the worst that anyone can do to us, or the worst thing that can happen, is uh, to give us life with you, which would be death uh, in this world. And so, Lord, we know that this is a special day. And, Lord, we know that every Lord's Day is a special day when you meet and you gather with your people. We thank you especially for, for this day when we celebrate the incarnation of Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom on earth and in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.